Hello, this is Shonda Smith-Baker. I am excited to be with you and bringing you yet another Conversations with Shonda. We will be talking with two people that I greatly respect in their work that they're doing in criminal justice reform and specifically as part of the Innocence Project. Sarah Jones, she is the executive director of the Great North Innocence Project, where she is responsible for the executive leadership. She leads the organization's vision, strategy, financial management and criminal justice policy. Her father, we talk about this actually in the podcast, but her commitment to public service evolved into a career shift to the nonprofit sector, including working on advancement at William Mitchell College of Law, now Mitchell Hamlin, and the University of Minnesota Law School. She is the past president of the Minnesota Women's Lawyers and serves on its advisory board. She is also a board member of We Are All Criminals, and serves on the board of the Council of Crime and Justice. Also in this conversation is Peter Neufeld. Peter is a nationally recognized civil rights attorney, having spent over 35 years trying cases on behalf of victims of police misconduct and wrongful convictions. Peter's commitment to his clients and skills in the courtroom has led to some of the largest civil rights verdicts and settlements nationwide, as well as major systemic criminal justice reform. In addition to his civil rights practice, Peter, along with partner Barry Sheck, they co-founded and co-directs the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project has been responsible in whole or in part for exonerating most of the over 300 men and women to be cleared through post-conviction DNA testing. And I am very thrilled to have this conversation with the two of them. You're listening to Conversations with Shonda a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. I appreciate both you, Sarah, and Peter being on the podcast uh, this morning with me. Terrific. And uh, Peter, so you know, Shonda has worked with us at the Great North Innocence Project very generously to provide some grant funding for our conviction review unit that we share with the Attorney General's office. And she and I also served on the search committee for Minneapolis's next police chief. Have you found someone? We brought forward three people to the mayor and our commissioner of public safety for them to do further screening and determination on fit for the department. It certainly feels like a very weighty task. Your committee actually recommends the people and and then the mayor has to select from that group? Yeah. Yeah. That's the plan. We're waiting to hear which one he selected. Right. Wherever I travel, they talk about Minneapolis being ground zero for all things police reform, for sure. I don't know where we're at in totality on the reform part of it, but Peter, how have you seen sort of the reforms post-George Floyd's murder evolve from your point of view? Well, obviously, the Innocence Project and the whole Innocence Movement were concerned with police conduct because misconduct by police has played a very pivotal role in bringing about wrongful convictions all over the country. And so what we find is that the police who may have engaged in misconduct in our cases, whether it's through generating a false confession or an unduly suggestive ID or lassoing in an informant to help make the case, that those same offices uh, generally have had other complaints against them in the past. Complaints involving excessive force, complaints involving fabricating evidence, all kinds of things. And unfortunately, uh, all too often, 
those prior disciplinary records are secret and the public is not aware of them. Police are not disciplined uh, aggressively uh, when there is a finding. The entities that do the investigation to see if there's a finding are wimpy. And so systemically, we're very much interested in that issue. After uh, George Floyd's murder, that became a very important issue uh, nationwide. And obviously, the response has been spotty. You know, the George Floyd law never passed Congress. A few states uh, enacted certain provisions to uh, create more accountability on the part of police uh, and greater transparency. But, um, you know, that sort of dissipated very, very quickly. Right now, what you see across the country is uh, the prevailing mood is law and order and not enough about accountability, not enough about anti-racism. Sarah, how about from your point of view? You've been you've been here in our city. One of the attorneys, I think it was Dante Wright. They've been attorney for most of the cases that have been um, um, uh reported here, but one of the attorneys said, um, this is a city that refuses to learn from itself. And that just really struck me. Do you see movement on what we've done here? Well, I hope so. I'm kind of an internal optimist. I am hopeful that when we have new leadership in the police department, as with the new commissioner of public safety for Minneapolis, that we will see some changes that go beyond um, kind of the patchwork uh, in name only types of fixes that we've supposedly seen. We partner with police and when they do their jobs right, it can make everything more just. But there are difficult problems within police departments all over the country and they're tough to surmount because they're such an embedded culture. Even when new rules are put in place, it seems like oftentimes in application, they're not really followed. So I I hope that we'll see greater accountability. Do you think that we're building the accountability system? Because from my point of view, we're we're coming up with new programs around public safety, but I'm not sure what we're doing around accountability. Yeah, I think that remains to be seen. The discipline, I think, has been spotty and a bit loose. Um, We hear in Minneapolis a lot about coaching when police do things that are supposedly wrong and they end up getting coached about the problem, which means what? We don't know because it doesn't become part of a public disciplinary record. Both of you, I believe, got started as public defenders. Is that right? I have never practiced criminal law. I grew up with with my father was the first state public defender in Minnesota, and he served in that role for about 25 years. So I, I grew up with it. And I swore I'd never be a lawyer. And then I swore I'd never be a criminal lawyer. And um, I've ended up in the best job I've ever had. Um, So I guess I've grown up. Yeah, I love it. I started as a a public defender in the South Bronx in 1976. I stayed there for about nine years. It was a transformational time in the Bronx and in New York City. And then I, I, I taught for a little while at uh, Fordham Law School teaching trial advocacy. And I started doing some civil rights cases and then doing sort of more political criminal cases for a few years uh, before Barry and I founded the Innocence Project uh, in New York. Did you, Peter, have an interest in civil rights prior to working as a public defender? Yeah, I, I grew up in one of those families that was very much involved in, in civil rights. I mean, you know, my mother led a support uh, demonstration uh, at the Woolworths in, in in Long Island when I was a little kid and to support the people down in Greensboro and other places. 
who was sitting in at the counter and uh, we shut down the the Woolworths uh, in Long Island. I don't, I, you know, I wasn't even a teenager yet. It was it was a big part of our lives from an early an early age. When when they shut down schools down south rather than integrate, we we collected books and stuff for freedom schools in the south and drove down south with those. And that's uh, I was in pre adolescence at that point. So yeah, these issues have always been very important in our family. Yeah, how about you, Sarah? Well, as I mentioned, my father was a public defender and he worked a lot. He also taught law school at night at William Mitchell College of Law. And so his work was kind of the center of our family life, really. He'd be grading papers and we'd be talking about the issues in the papers. Um, and the issues certainly went beyond my understanding as a young child, but I just sort of absorbed it all and heard him talking about injustice and the importance of the presumption of innocence and the importance to keep following that all the way through a case to really get at the truth or justice. And I learned early on that there are very difficult roadblocks to finding justice and finding somebody innocent as opposed to guilty. While we have this presumption of innocence, I think a lot of society prejudges people based on their race or socioeconomic status and so forth. And justice is harder for some than for others. You know, we talked about it all the time when I was growing up and, um, I guess it became part of my DNA, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I sort of grew up like I know you all know, but in terms of there are police that you can trust and then the system that makes it impossible a bit for people to survive in it in, in a way. And, you know, the O.J. Simpson case really did transform for many in community the opportunity for us to both watch the trial, you know, to be in discussion about something that was really in large part about the criminal justice system. And then we've seen Derek Chauvin's trial and other trials. Do you think that the broadcasting of the trials, Peter has helped with understanding the system and around transparency? Do you think that trend is useful or no? That's a very good question. So when I was a public defender and people wanted to televise trials, I was opposed to it. I was particularly opposed to it when I was the trial lawyer and uh, my client stood in the dock because the, the way that the media sensationalized proceedings, that there were plenty of studies that corroborated the notion that trials were not good for criminal defendants. They only encouraged a greater desire for retribution, revenge. It wasn't good at all. I'm not so sure that even covering trials, you know, if because you, you can't just pick selected cases you'd have to go through everything and just say, fine, we'll just have a camera on all the time in every part, you know, in Hennepin County, and people can watch what they want. I'm not so sure that's a great idea. Uh, with respect to, to Chauvin, I think, you know, the videotape of what Chauvin did to Floyd is, is much more instructive than the trial. And one reason why the trial is less instructive is, quite honestly, Chauvin is the outlier. We just read about a case in this morning's paper uh, where an officer uh, was acquitted by an all-white jury in Texas for shooting an unarmed civilian four times and killing him, despite the fact that the, you know, the state police had found that uh, his conduct was illegal, he was fired immediately, um, and he had been indicted. So, and that's much more, that's the more typical outcome. So I, I don't necessarily find these, these televised trials that, that informative, no. 
Sarah, do you feel the same way about that? I do. I still have very mixed feelings about it. I think that when certain cases like the Chauvin trial are televised, it's too easy for people to think that that's the way it's going to go. Like Peter said, you know, that was kind of a an amazing experience for most people I know who aren't lawyers to witness that and so forth. But I'm not sure that uh, they understand that most of the time people aren't held accountable. You know, in, in that regard, the the prosecution of Chauvin was so qualitatively different than the prosecutions that I've observed all over the country of police officers who killed unarmed civilians, that it's in a different universe. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that uh, the attorney general brought in outside lawyers with expertise, the fact that he didn't rely on his local medical examiner to provide all the expert evidence, but instead sought out a, a, uh, an, a you know, one of the leading pulmonologists uh, in the field to uh, talk about the, the cause of death. Um, you, you just don't, he had, you know, Supreme Court litigators uh, briefing all the uh, evidentiary issues. You don't see that kind of quality prosecution to hold the police officer accountable anywhere else in America, period. Uh, I've worked with prosecutors trying to urge them to bring in outside lawyers like was done in Minneapolis. And they just don't want to do it. They, they just say, well, we can handle everything ourselves. And uh, that's the way it is. And of course, those, those officers end up being acquitted or the grand jury doesn't return an indictment because they weren't serious about the presentation. And uh, that's the norm in this country, not, not, not Chauvin. Yeah, I think the talent that was applied to the Chauvin trial was just absolutely exceptional, and we got a different result. I always wondered how informative it will be across the country, right, Peter? I, I'm like, I don't know if I should feel hopeful or like, I mean, it was exceptional, but I was hoping that by viewing it, other jurisdictions might choose to act differently in those cases. Yeah, well, so far they haven't. OK, and I actually hold up the example when I have these meetings, mm -hmm. asking them to bring in outside lawyers and outside experts. And because they're very much into being control freaks, they don't do it. And uh, and so they get they don't get the result you got in Hennepin County. You get a different result. You also have to bear in mind, too, that, you know, it's a, there's a pendulum that's swinging back and forth. I, I would like to think that the Floyd murder and the aftermath uh, was a moment in time which was going to, uh, you know, actually be like a tipping point to move people uh, nationwide systemically and systematically in a much more um, thoughtful direction. Unfortunately, to some extent, that's true, but not enough. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen most recently is people, you know, going back to uh, uh, law and order is the most important thing and uh, increasing police budgets and not really thinking about the root causes of, uh, of that kind of brutality. I think that's very true here in Minneapolis. I, I feel like people's memories are, are fading quickly. What will come of that horrible incident remains to be seen, but um, you know, we've had the uptick in violent crime in Minneapolis, like so many other cities around the country. And so people are back to you know calling for lock them up and uh, 
you know, the tough on crime stance and so forth, which, you know, to me, a lot of these questions aren't either or. We can both address root causes, like Peter said, and bring other expertise into public safety without compromising public safety as a whole due to the rise in violent crime. I mean, but it's a new approach and I'm just a little wary of how much of an effect it's really going to have as memories fade. So Peter, at the at the foundation, um, when I came, I wanted to work on issues of criminal justice reform. And my story really evolves around my cousin, uh, Christopher Miller, who was killed in 2011. And um, uh, he was shot uh, twice in his back. And I was able to go to trial and the detective on his case, Chris Arneson, I was just really fascinated by her. And we ended up serving on a steering committee um, together. The DOJ came in and I was really quite interested um, in that. And so when I came over to philanthropy, I really wanted to work on those two issues. And so you know, criminal justice reform. And I've really been thinking a lot around whether or not that's the right language for it. And I've heard, you know, the criminal legal system, criminal justice reform, like language is important and how we act into it. And it feels like what we're really trying to do is make the legal aspect of it work better, the policing aspect. And I just, I I think I heard you make some comments around um, the criminal justice system and thought I would get some insight from you on whether or not I, we should be evolving that in any sort of way. I mean, at the Innocence Project, we do refer to it as uh, the criminal legal system. And we are concerned that uh, that there really hasn't been enough attention paid to uh, achieving justice over the last, you know, 400 years. And so that maybe criminal legal system is a more appropriate term to understanding the needs for reform. Um, but I don't think the language is as important as as changing the culture, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm not even, frankly, as concerned with accountability. Really? Um, because I don't really necessarily believe that when you hold somebody accountable, that it becomes a deterrent for others who are similarly situated. I think that what really needs to happen here is that the culture has to change. So we have to fundamentally rethink what is policing all about in a democracy? Uh, what is policing all about in a society that isn't uh, uh, making decisions based on race or based on uh, economic status or gender? You know, what would a truly just system be like? And then have people, you know, change their minds and think differently. I mean, right now, People are still, just as Sarah pointed out, you know, this whole thing about, uh, you know, lock them up. Retribution is still a a primary, you know, objective. Uh, Fear is the primary emotion. Okay, it's interesting. I mean, fear fear is a more powerful emotion than love or hate. It may be the most powerful emotion. And, And so no matter what happens on a principled level, if something personal triggers that 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 fear, uh, that becomes uh, primary. And uh, we have to somehow figure out a way to overcome that if we're really going to do something with, with our legal systems. And we're going to have to start thinking about what are those you know, fundamental changes and causes that have to be addressed, whether it's education, housing, health, all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, our criminal legal system is just sort of the tip. Yeah. It's the tip that's a consequence of all the others. So 
I'm less concerned with with the words we use than uh, than what's what we're really thinking and what's in our heart. What was the journey that brought you to starting the Innocence Project? Oh, luck. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of luck. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of luck. I, I, you know, it's funny when when we um, when we first started the project, we were only concerned with exonerating individual people. We didn't think about systemic issues and legislation that just sort of grew out of the cases. And by deconstructing the cases, we realized that. But as a public defender, I, it's funny, I'm, I'm one of those people who I had difficulty with the abstractness of education. Other people don't, but I, I always did. I needed things to be much more uh, concrete and, and they had to involve real people. So I was not, I didn't love law school uh, or even, you know, uh, undergraduate school for that matter. But I didn't have any background in science. And I think primarily I didn't have a background in science because I had terrible, terrible high school uh, biology and chemistry teachers and it just got me turned off. Uh, but when you when I became a public defender and uh, I had a client who was being prosecuted for murder and the key evidence was forensic evidence and serology, I said, oh, my God, I've got to learn this stuff if I'm going to you know, hopefully save this person's life or liberty. And so in that situation, it was much easier for me to learn new new disciplines, new subject matter. And so I started learning science and started learning much more about psychology. And I began to litigate issues at the intersection of science and law when I was still a public defender, which eventually led to uh, understanding that uh, DNA was being used in England in immigration cases that hadn't been used in the U.S. yet. And uh, maybe we could do something if we could go back in time, if they had saved evidence and maybe we could look at DNA and biological evidence and, and test it, even when people have been convicted years ago, and uh, and find a new truth in the case. And so then you, by doing that work, then you decided then to expand it into the Innocence Project? Well, what happened was, is that we did a couple of cases, and oh, Barry went on television on one of the cases, and it was a, uh, it was like a, one of those daytime talk shows, which was apparently very, very popular in the, you know, in, in the public rooms at the prisons, in the day rooms. Oh. And so turned out that people who were incarcerated all over the country were watching this TV show when we said that we were you know, helping people reopen old cases. And, uh, and very quickly, we became flooded with uh, letters from uh, people who were incarcerated. And, uh, and then we also won a few more cases, which, which received a lot of publicity. Uh, in the press. And that just, you know, it's not a problem. It's just that we got hit with all kinds of letters and and we didn't have the staff. We were doing the whole thing out of our hip pocket. So we hired a couple of people and uh, and then we sort of, you know, formalized the, the clinic. So it wouldn't be people just who were doing criminal cases, but also do wrongful conviction cases. We decided to set up a clinic and a program that would focus exclusively on cases where people were putting forth the hypothesis that they had been wrongly convicted. So there's a lot of folks that believe that if you're in prison, you are guilty, right? Like there's not a presumption of innocence. And so of, I'm thinking of the letters that you received. What percentage do you think were actually innocent? Well, I, I, we have no idea. I mean, because there's no, uh, it's funny. Over the years, we've been approached by, uh, you know, Google, uh, Microsoft, and uh, people said, oh, we're going to come up with a, uh, 
I don't know if this happened to you, Sarah, with a, an algorithm uh, <laughs> that will, can be used to evaluate the letters that you receive and then make an assessment on the likelihood that they're innocent, or that this is a case that will bear fruit. As often as they've tried, they've failed. We haven't found a substitute for, for having an intake group that really thoroughly vets the cases. What I can tell you is that there are people who we turned down who eventually were exonerated with the help of others, okay? Wow. In the cases that we accept, and we eventually did DNA testing, our exoneration rate was about 50%. And one might, from that, draw the inference that, wow, you mean 50% of the people told you they were innocent and they weren't innocent? And I don't think that's as interesting a number as the fact that 50% of the people who were writing to us and claim they were innocent, but they had been tried and convicted by juries or been forced into pleading guilty because uh, they were petrified that if they, if they asserted their right to a, a trial, that the sentence they would get would be much, much harsher. I'm amazed that it's as high an exoneration rate as it's been over the last 30 years. I don't know what your results have been, Sarah, but well, we look at it as sort of finding the needle in the haystack. I mean, we we are flooded with requests to look at people's cases. And like you said, I mean, it takes an enormous amount of people effort to review these cases. We work with students in our clinics at four different law schools in our region of Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. So we each year, each academic year, we have close to 20 people who are doing nothing but um, screening cases when they come in uh, requesting help and then kind of sifting through those to find the ones where we think that there is actually evidence, new evidence that can meet the very high legal standard that one needs in order to prove innocence. Um, because once you're convicted, the burden shifts and you have to prove your innocence. So it, it can take hundreds and hundreds of hours and sometimes years to work on these cases. I and mean, we we have some that our legal team has been working on for over 10 years. Others, you know, the results come more quickly, but um, it's enormously time consuming because there, there is no magic al algorithm or, or way to statistically screen these cases. And like Peter said, I mean, the cases where we truly believe someone is innocent, but the legal system is just not allowing us to, to uh, meet the standards, it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking because these are real human beings whose lives have been completely turned over. And, you know, they they remain hopeful, but uh, we can't always help. And it's just devastating. One other little piece of data, which is relevant to what we were talking about before, is that you know, one of the things that we find is that every step in the criminal legal system, there is a really harsh disparity between the way that Black people are treated or people of color are treated versus white people. And that harsh disparity even reaches into the work that, that Sarah and I do and our colleagues do. Uh, we have found that it takes on average two to three years longer to exonerate a Black person wrongly convicted of a crime than a white person that uh, we meet on average much greater resistance on the part of police and prosecutors, uh, a much greater uh, resistance on the part of the judiciary, and it becomes that much more difficult. And we're like Sarah in the sense that it can take us 10, 12 years of working on a case, even after we get the evidence. And, and the evidence, whether it's DNA or other evidence, 
which is compelling proof of innocence, it can take years of litigation to get the courts to accept our arguments. And that needs to change. You know, Sarah's talking about a very high bar that's needed to uh, reopen a case. And uh, it shouldn't be that high. You know, sometimes, particularly in cases where you don't have biological evidence and you don't have DNA, you still have the same causes of wrongful conviction. You still have coerced confessions. You still have misidentifications. You still have incentivized jailhouse snitches. You still have police and prosecutorial misconduct. You just don't have DNA. But if the prosecutors would look at these cases and see, well, I think the same kinds of issues exist in these cases, then even without the, you know, the silver bullet of DNA, they should be reflective and think about maybe vacating that conviction uh, because we can't really rely on that type of evidence anymore. We've just seen it be faulty in far too many cases involving DNA. I think I think Peter hit on something really important, which is prosecutors taking a new approach. You know, we in Minnesota were lucky to help develop a conviction review unit that is applicable statewide, um, but it all depends upon voluntary cooperation of the prosecutors in each county, as well as the attorney general. But what it allows us to do is take cases where you know we may have been in court, essentially you know beating our heads against a wall because the we can't meet the standard or the courts make decisions that we haven't met the standard even when we think we have. So this allows us to then take those cases and present them holistically, and get the prosecutor involved if they're willing to cooperate. And take a second look at the case and look at all of the evidence and, and perhaps make a decision based on the totality of the evidence that even though, you know, the legal standard can't be met, each box can't be ticked, the evidence shows that this person is actually innocent and, and they have the power to recommend vacating that conviction and presenting the case to the court to get the conviction vacated. You know, again, it's it's a mountain to climb, but uh, we're hopeful as this trend of conviction review units across the country takes hold that um, the culture of the system will change a little bit and that prosecutors, too, will be willing to say, you know what? We think that there was a mistake made and it's, you know, it's it's OK to admit that. And it's what's right for our system, it's what's right for the individual who's being held um, wrongfully. And, and I would even go a step further, which is that even if the prosecutor doesn't necessarily conclude, and I'm in these conviction integrity units um, or conviction review units, that our client is innocent, enough information may come forward, uh, police misconduct, uh, withholding of exculpatory evidence from the defense, of suborning perjury by the police or other kinds of misconduct that the new prosecutor could conclude that, you know what, it's been 25 years, we don't, we're not able to necessarily reach innocence because of the passage of time, the death of witnesses, but given the totality, I, I can't have any confidence in the integrity of this conviction any longer. It just smells bad. And so in the interest of justice, we're going to vacate that conviction. And that's that's something that we're, we're beginning to see okay. more enlightened prosecutors consider. 
And that's a very, very good sign because in so many of these old cases where you don't have the DNA, but you still have all the um, indicators of a wrongful conviction and innocence, uh, there has to be criteria utilized that's realistic and practical and uh, can vacate convictions where there simply is no confidence in their integrity any longer. Peter's getting at something where, uh, you know, it's like a, I don't know what the expression is, the Hobson's choice, where, you know, a prosecutor may be willing to let somebody um, go free from prison, but they're not willing to exonerate them completely. So essentially they're saying, okay, you know, this smells bad. We'll let this person out of prison because they've served enough time and we're not confident in the integrity of the conviction, but we're not going to actually declare the person innocent. And then that, you know, what is it, what is a person in prison claiming wrongful conviction to do? Either I can get out of prison and be with my family today, or I can keep beating my head against a wall here in prison for something I didn't do. And then what happens is they get out of prison, but they're not entitled to compensation for those years that they spent in prison. So we've seen that happen too, where several of our clients were freed, but not exonerated. And as a result, there was no compensation for them. And they gave up decades sometimes of their lives, their earning years, their ability to take care of their family and so forth. So it's, uh, it's not as satisfying as when there's an actual exoneration, but it's important as well. How has I was thinking in terms of the the growth of forensic science since the Innocent Project was started. Are the reasons, have the reasons shifted? Before there was eyewitness accounts, Sarah, I think you showed me the graphic of um, how um, things have shifted over time in terms of people getting out, where before it might have been wrong eyewitness account or like, what are the reasons for people getting off now? Is it is it the same as it was 25 years ago? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to understand that we don't really have a, uh, you know, a well-informed database to answer that question. So when we first started, we were the only project and we only did DNA cases. Mm -hmm. Since that beginning, uh, an innocence network and an innocence movement took off all over the country. And the majority of those projects do non-DNA cases and have achieved fabulous success in a much more difficult environment than the one in which we first started. Because it's much easier to prove someone's innocence that they were wrongly convicted when the person was convicted of the sexual assault of a 90-year-old widow, and you test the semen recovered in the rape kit, and you exclude that person. You know, that's the end of the argument. Everybody's on the same page. So by limiting our cases early on to sexual assault cases, sexual assault homicide cases and homicide cases, um, it was very, very easy to get unanimity of, of agreement on innocence. But at the same time, it basically meant we were dealing with certain kinds of cases. So if you're dealing with sexual assault cases, overwhelmingly, the evidence that convicted them was the eyewitness testimony of the victim. So if you're doing non-DNA cases, there are gonna be fewer rape cases now than there were when we started. And so they won't necessarily be dominated by eyewitness testimony. 
See what I'm saying? Yeah. So things change for lots of other reasons. If we don't look at our rape cases and instead we look at just our homicide cases, misidentifications were not the primary contributing factor. False confessions were the primary contributing factor. Because in a homicide case, the victim is no longer alive to make an ID. And so to make those cases, uh, the police spent a lot more time coercing false confessions out of their suspects or then getting a, a, a jailhouse informant to say that the suspect confessed to them than they would in a sexual assault case. So, you know, our, our data sets are convenience data sets. They're not necessarily reflective of a true cross-section of all the people who are wrongly convicted at any, at any given time. Yeah, I get well, that. I think policy becomes a lot more important too. We, we're seeing in our work, you know, like Peter was saying, you get cases that are no longer based on DNA, but things like coerced confessions or eyewitness identifications. And we have learned that there are best practices for how police, um, for example, conduct lineups, which is usually done with photographs. So in Minnesota, for example, we worked for years to get a law passed that now requires all police um, agencies throughout the state to use what are considered to be the current uh, core four best practices in um, having people make identifications. Is it fail safe? No. Um, but when when the principles are applied, it's less likely to result in a in a mistaken eyewitness identification. And so it's um, it's important that police are using these uh, these best practices. Um, we also just passed a bill in Minnesota um, on the re reporting and tracking of the use of jailhouse witnesses um, so that we, you know, we know there are people in prison who become sort of serial jailhouse witnesses and the way they tell it, you know, people are confessing to them all the time. And so we can now track in Minnesota when somebody is used over and over again as a, as a jailhouse witness and that undermines their credibility. And if prosecutors and police are doing their jobs right, they should care about this because they should want to get the right person convicted, not, not the wrong person. Sarah, when you're tracking them in, in Minnesota, do you also do they also have to uh, report what kinds of incentives were given to the informants in terms of, oh, we dismissed a case against that guy or we shortened his uh, imprisonment or, or, or paid him? Yes, that's a very important factor that I forgot to mention. Thank you, Peter. Um, because some one of the reasons that jailhouse witnesses are so notoriously unreliable is because they're usually getting some sort of incentive for their testimony, whether it's a, a reduced sentence or other special privilege. And so the idea is that the prosecutors do need to report uh, deals that they make with these jailhouse witnesses. Now, you know, that's not to say that prosecutors and, and the witnesses can't have a kind of wink and a nod um, type of agreement without making it specific. And then theoretically, they wouldn't have to report it. Oh, we didn't give the person a deal. And yet everybody involved knew that they were going to get something for it. Yeah, you guys bring up a good point around data and the availability or the absence of data. This has been a big conversation locally. Where do you see opportunity for better data collection around the criminal justice system? Like, where could we be pushing on that better? Everywhere. Everywhere. Say and, more, Peter. 
No, I mean, I mean, think about it. I think one of the other things that came out of the uh, out of the George Floyd murder was deaths in custody. How many people are actually dying who are unarmed when police are trying to subdue someone uh, in the use of restraints? And then you find out, huh, there was a federal statute passed called the Death in Custody Reporting Act, which required um, every state to submit data to the federal government so it could be reported to the, to the public on all these details about death in custody. And you look a little deeper and you find out, well, most states don't report the data. Uh, the Attorney General of the United States has discretion to then punish those states that don't submit data on deaths in custody by not giving them burn grants by not giving grants that help their police departments. And every state in the country gets these federal grants and needs them. But it's discretionary. And the attorney generals of each administration have declined to use that uh, power. And no one's ever been uh, denied any federal money for failing to report the data on deaths in custody. So, you know, it starts at the top at the federal government but there's no meaningful keeping of data by local law enforcement agencies, um, by our courts, uh, by defenders, by prosecutors. And so it's very difficult to use that data to effectuate new policy if it's not being kept in any kind of meaningful way and reported. I mean, there not only has to be the keeping of data, there has to be the transparent sharing of data. Have you seen any state that's doing that well? No. No, I mean, it's partly who's the constituency. You know, forensic science is a great example of that, okay? We have a very extensive regulatory system in this country for clinical science and clinical medicine, right? We have the FDA. We have the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. We have uh, the Centers on uh, on on Medicare and Medicaid, uh, setting standards for clinical laboratories. But for forensic science and forensic laboratories, there's almost nothing. And that's because on the one hand, in the first instance, the constituency that wants data collected and wants regulation implemented is all of us. That's the constituency. It's people of all races. It's people of all economic backgrounds, particularly white people with money. Okay, and everybody cares about the quality of our healthcare and our medicine. But who's the constituency for crime labs? Sarah's clients, my clients, they don't have a lot of leverage. And so people historically haven't given much in the way of standards, regulation, or the collection of data. Uh, hopefully the innocence work that Sarah does and other projects do around the country will begin to change that but it's going to be a slow change. Sarah, for the um, for the conviction review unit, you will be collecting data and sharing that out, correct? Can you say a little bit more about that too, the project? Yeah, you know, we're still in the early stages. Uh, there has not been a case yet where a recommendation has been made to vacate a conviction. Uh, what, what ended up happening is with one uh, lawyer director, the conviction review unit, uh, once it opened its its doors, so to speak, for business, received 900 or more applications for uh, review. 
And when you're reviewing these cases, you can't get through 900 of them very quickly. That said, they've been categorizing them in terms of which, uh, what kinds of claims people are making, uh, whether or not they're claiming that their sentence is unjust as opposed to being wrongfully convicted altogether. And that is all being tracked by the attorney general's office. So we're looking at what are the causes of wrongful conviction that people are claiming and what are the outcomes of the cases where the, there is a recommendation made or not that a conviction be vacated. You know, the, the data are forthcoming but um, because it's a long process, but we have plenty of cases on which to report data. So the federal government is going to be requiring that we report on that as part of the grant making process. And we are waiting as we speak to hear whether we will get a renewal of that grant for two more years. And we've managed through the help of foundations like the Minneapolis Foundation and the Polad Family Foundation to get some funding for additional staffing and investigators and so forth to work on those applications along with the director. Small but mighty team looking at all of these claims. And, you know, we should see, we should be able to see trends. And eventually the CRU hopes to be looking at cases of what we might call manifest injustice where sentences are excessive and things like that. But right now, the, the CRU is still focused on actual innocence cases. Sarah, you talked about um, data being collected for jailhouse witnesses. Mm-hmm. Is there data captured on officers that have participated that have falsified evidence or, or any? Is there any sort of tracking or is that still sort of caught up in the coaching discipline process? Or is I, there a way to look at trends there? I I really have no awareness of any data that that are being tracked for misconduct because, you know, under the Data Practices Act, a lot of disciplinary um, information is considered private data if it doesn't rise above a certain level, which is where the coaching comes in. You know, that doesn't have to be reported. No details about that have to be reported because it's not considered formal discipline. Shonda, I mean, you're bringing up another good point, which is the importance of learning about trends, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, which police officers engage in misconduct? Which ones are recidivist? I and mean, if you just think about it, again, that disparity between the civilian, the way we deal with our civilian lives and the way we deal with the criminal legal system. If you ran a bank and a bank teller was caught embezzling funds on a transaction, you wouldn't think twice about ordering an audit of that bank teller's other transactions. Because you would think if the bank teller embezzled funds once, there's a good chance that he or she did it on other occasions. Well, if a police detective is caught fabricating a confession or committing perjury or recruiting a jailhouse informant and then feeding that informant uh, details about the case so the informant will sound convincing, you should also think that it's not necessarily a one-off situation, that there's a good chance that that same detective did this in more than one situation. But no one, okay, or very rarely are audits conducted of the other cases where the detectives may have committed the same misconduct. Uh, And that's why you need that data. We have a situation in Chicago right now where seven detectives were involved in basically uh, coercing and fabricating false confessions out of four Black teenagers. And there's no question that the confessions were coerced. There's no 
question that they were all innocent and they spent uh, more than 20 years in prison uh, before being exonerated and identifying the real perpetrator of a uh, sexual assault murder. There's no question that the officers committed perjury at least two or three times in the course of those proceedings. And there's also no question that at least two or three of those detectives were responsible for half dozen other wrongful convictions. At what point do you have to say, my God, if this detective has gotten false confessions out of people proven to be false in, in seven or eight different crimes, then shouldn't we now question, can we have confidence in his confessions that he secures in 20 other murder cases? Mm-hmm. You, know, you wouldn't have confidence in the reliability of that if it was a doctor who was operating. Um, you wouldn't have confidence in that if it was uh, some business person you're relying on to uh, take your money and invest it. So why do we simply you know, not have audits of these detectives? And one of the reasons is we don't have the data. Another reason is we have a bias of not really applying the same kind of quality assessment in law enforcement, policing, and criminal justice or criminal legal systems that we have in other aspects of our daily lives. Peter, you mentioned that there's sort of disparities throughout the criminal justice sort of continuum as people go through their journey in the system. And I'm wondering if you could just say where those disparities happen just for our listeners, because I think that oftentimes we see it at arrest, like over-policing and then what happens in trial end up being sort of where we talk about disparities, but are there other places where you're seeing disparate treatment um, throughout that continuum? Well, I mean, the first place you see it obviously is in the investigation, okay? And uh, the, I mean, the black community is just under constant surveillance. And so people in that community are going to be arrested much more frequently than in other communities. I mean, uh, a great example of that, which is, um, oh, gosh, we, we had it in New York, uh, just kids and young adults being arrested for, uh, for marijuana, right? Mm-hmm. Every study that's been conducted on demographics in the United States show convincingly that pot is smoked just as much by white people as by Black people or people of Latinx origins. Yet in New York, you know, three quarters of the arrests for pot were Black kids. In Seattle, someone just told me that, you know, Black people make up 4% of the population, but 40% of all pot arrests are of Black people. So that's not as serious a case as robbery or homicide. But the disparity is there and a disparity is everywhere uh, during the investigation when you want to arrest somebody. Uh, The next disparity has to do with, well, if they're arrested, what do you want to charge them with? And uh, the data seems to indicate pretty clearly that the charges will be more serious if you're a person uh, from a a minority group, someone who's more disenfranchised or at the margins uh, than if you're white and well-to-do. Not only will the charges be more serious, but then there's a greater likelihood that you'll be denied bail, or if bail is uh, set, it'll be much higher uh, if you're Black or or a person of color, and the prosecution will be much more rigorous. What we have found in our own data sets is that there are more contributing factors for the wrongful conviction present 
when the person standing in the dock is a person of color than a white person. So law enforcement police are willing to bend more rules, whether it's the informant, the misidentification, coercing a witness to make an identification, coercing a false confession. Prosecutors are more willing to hold back exculpatory evidence, we call it Brady material, uh, if it's a person of color. So the, the, the prosecution is very different. The jury composition is very different. And if they are convicted, the sentence they get from the judge is very different. And the amount of time they will spend in prison before being paroled is very different. And if they are paroled, what it takes to get that parole violated and sent back to prison is again, very different based on race. So that's why I say at every single you know, vertebrae in this long uh, backbone that we call uh, our criminal legal system, there are huge racial disparities. I have to agree. I mean, just every step of the way. And frankly, to me, a lot of it comes down to people's assumption that some people are more, um, I hate to say it, but disposable than others. I think that there is a lack of recognition of the universal humanity in every person and people, you know, black people and people of color, people of low socioeconomic status in our country are seen as, frankly, somewhat disposable. One could conclude by looking at the system carefully um, or even on the surface. There's just no shortage of issues that we need to address. It doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be explicit racism either, okay? I mean, I think, frankly, it's more likely to be implicit than explicit. It's more likely that, that all of us might unconsciously think that the Black person is guilty than the white person. Well, I think in Minneapolis, you know, what we're, what's long been known, and I've lived here all my life, long been known, but um, now is getting some lip services. The fact that racism here in, in our city is explicit and as well as impl- implicit. But, you know, we, ha- we have a lot of work to do. And if we don't get started on it, then we're never going to get anywhere. So let, let's talk about that then for a second, which is, particularly following the murder of George Floyd, it woke some people up that have been sort of sleeping and knew that we had some racial challenges. For others, it was, oh my God, I can't believe this is my city. When did we get like this? And for others, it was like, I've been telling y'all, right? I've been working on this. The evidence is there. I don't know why you're just waking up. And so for the folks that have made sort of a new commitment of getting involved and issues related to the criminal justice reform that maybe sit outside of the spaces you are in, you know, I'm in philanthropy, like what, what advice or where, where would you recommend? Because I get asked this question all the time. I want to get engaged. I don't know where to jump in. What would you advise? You're, you're in Minneapolis and, uh, and St. Paul and, and, and you should probably give yeah. you know, on the ground more. Well, and I, I have to say that, you know, North and South Dakota and many and Minnesota are also home to 23 Native nations. And the statistics are pretty sad when one looks at the discrimination um, and disproportionate Im- negative impact on um, Native Americans, as well as Black people and Latinx people. Minneapolis, you know, of course, is a focal point right now um, because of George Floyd's murder. So we're very conscious of that here, but I don't want people to forget that it goes farther than than that as well. 
I think what we try to tell people is that it's important to be aware of the issues, have people pay attention to not only the Great North Innocence Project and its work, but other organizations that are trying to address the criminal legal system and the reforms that we need. There are a number of nonprofit organizations that people can get involved in, and one that that I'm very close to is the organization We Are All Criminals, which uses art and storytelling to demonstrate to all of us that, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, and we've all done things wrong. And if we are seen as what we do on our worst days, as opposed to being seen as human beings who come with all of our flaws and, and mistakes, people are never going to be able to distinguish and treat people like human beings to begin with. To me, that's the, the fundamental foundation of all of this is that we need to treat people humanely, regardless of their circumstances. You know, I, it's funny, I, I, you know, I was raised to think that that issue, particularly, I mean, the issue of racism was something that, well, that happens in the South, but not in the North. Okay. And of course, that's absurd. And, and it's not even a Minneapolis issue. I mean, uh, the police killed Eric Garner in a chokehold years before George Floyd was killed uh, by police. I worked on a case back in the 90s of a man named Abner Louima, uh, who was a Haitian immigrant who was taken to the precinct in Brooklyn, and uh, he was uh, tortured with a, uh, a broom, you know, stuck up his rear end, uh, ripping out his organs uh, by the police in the police bathroom. And that's that's Brooklyn. So these kind of things happen everywhere. It just so happens that, you know, some very you know brave teenager took out a phone and videotaped what happened to George Floyd. Otherwise, George Floyd would just be another case where, uh, you know, he he died in custody and that would have been the end of it. Uh, you know, fortunately, with technology and other um, uh, assets, we can we can illuminate these cases. We can do more to make it a teaching moment. But once it is a teaching moment, your question is, well, what do you do with that? You know, I, I, I still think, you know, what, what Sarah and what we do is more of the back end. You know, when she's talking about uh, treating people as human beings, we can also do more to prevent our institutions from being predisposed to treat people with disparity uh, and to treat people poorly. So, you know, I used to be primarily concerned with uh, presidential elections and our senators and, and Congress people. Now I'm very focused on local elections. You know, we, we can play a role in who our local district attorney is, our prosecutors. I assume they're elected in Minnesota. Uh, yeah. Okay. And they are in New York and they are in most states. Mm -hmm. And we should make sure that the person who gets elected to have that very, very important function has the sense of humanity that Sarah is describing. We should uh, get involved in our local school boards, right? Gosh, we don't want a school board that's going to prohibit the teachers from teaching any anything about our history that's uncomfortable for our children. If they don't hear those uncomfortable um, narratives about our past, you know, they're doomed to repeat them in the future. So we should be involved in our school board ele elections. We should be very concerned with who's running our libraries. We don't want them run by people who are gonna remove books, you know, that challenge our kids' um, uh, presumptions and assumptions. We want them challenged. So we should be involved in, in all those local institutions, which we really 
hadn't been involved in in the past, that should become much more of a priority for all of us. Yeah, I love that. And we are in election season with um, elections on all those races, I believe, in November. So lastly, you all have a, a event coming up. And um, if you could just share the details of that event so we could make sure to get that out to the listeners. Sure. The Great North Innocence Project is holding its annual Benefit for Innocence this year on October 26th from 530 to 930 at Quincy Hall in Northeast Minneapolis. And we are thrilled to be featuring our MC, Shonda Smith-Baker, <laughs> who will take us through the program and our keynote speaker, Peter Neufeld. Um, and our focus this year is going to be on science. We're calling it the benefit for innocence, um, the science of justice. And we know that Peter has deep and broad expertise in issues of forensic science, starting with DNA that got the Innocence Project started, but there are all kinds of other aspects of science that have either become more sophisticated and useful to us in demonstrating wrongful convictions and science that has been demonstrated to not be science at all. So science plays a huge role in criminal legal system, in the criminal legal system, and we're going to explore some of that uh, not too serious of a nature that evening. We're going to have some fun, but I hope people will be able to join us and people aren't able to join us in person, we are going to be live streaming the program portion of the evening as well. You can learn more at our website, greatnorthinnocenceproject.org. Sounds good. And if they wanted to learn more about the Innocence Project and its evolution over the last 25 years, Peter, where would they go? I think probably Sarah's website's a good place to start on that. The Great Northern Innocence Project has a lot of information on it. And there are people who are working there are very committed to this work. Uh, obviously, we were the first project and we have a larger staff. And so uh, we have a little bit more information and you can just simply go to uh, innocenceproject.org and uh, search that website. You'll receive a lot more information. But I think that what's important is that your listeners really support the, uh, the Great Northern Innocence Project because they're doing the, the lion's share of the work uh, in your part of the country. Thank you, Peter. I love hearing that for the podcast. We have a very national audience. I will um, have them go to your website as well. And I think it's great for them to come here. I appreciate it. It's time for your national audience to support the Great Northern Innocence Project. I hear that. I heard that. Yeah. Because <laughs> we need we need all the support we can get here. Um, we can we can be the model for what could work if we keep on, if we keep at it here in the Twin Cities. Well, we've been enormously blessed uh, from Vigils Foundations and the Innocence Network, which is an amazing organization that Peter and Barry founded at the Innocence Project that helps us all do better work around the world now, because this movement is, is worldwide now. Sounds good. Well, Peter, thank you. I didn't want to ask too many questions around the science, although I'm incredibly curious. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for the event. I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks here and certainly appreciate your time this morning. Oh, it's Thank you, great. And Chandra, since I'm, we'll see you in person uh, out in the Twin Cities, uh, she, you know, all you have to do is give me one bourbon and I'll talk to you forever about it. <laughs> you know what? Bourbon's my drink, so that's what we'll have to get. <laughs> okay. All right. Y'all take care. Have a good week. <laughs> If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. 
And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, and Darlin Benjamin. This is Sue Pak Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening.